welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We'll be talking about movies at the Berlin Film Festival. And to do this, I have uh, coaxed Amy Tauen to to come and talk about a couple of movies that she's she's seen from the lineups. Uh, welcome back, Amy. Hi, Nick. I'm glad to be back. I'm also glad that I'm not covering Berlin because I just had it after Sundance. Not that the films weren't wonderful, but four to five films, if you really do this on your computer every day for seven days, you never want to see another movie again. I'll say something really generally. Mm -hmm. It's really a strange experience when all the movies are quite good, but you get the feeling that they don't matter anymore. And that's a horrible thing to say. I mean, they don't change your life. Although I did see two or three things at Sundance that I thought, really, had I seen them in better circumstances, they would have absolutely revived my passion for movies. And what have I done with my life being a film critic for 50 years? And I would have said, oh, yes, I'm glad I did that. But in the context, just all the sameness of seeing movies on your computer. It's really hard to figure out, well, is that movie worth anything in your life? And that's why I decided not to cover Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's good to hear that. I feel like a lot of people feel that. And it's not a huge mystery. It's, you know, it's just, you know, they're made to see in a screen with a lot of people with you and that shared sense of suspense and just shared space. You know, again, it's like the whole world is undergoing this terrible, you know, experiment right now. How are things different? Even though on the one hand, it seems it's nice that it's convenient and I can see four or five things, you know, right in a row, but there is such a sameness to the experience. Yeah. And I still stand by the feeling that It's almost like they don't take up the same amount of real estate in your head somehow. (laughs) I don't know. Exactly. Image has to be bigger than you. Exactly. Which is why, you know, now when you talk to distributors, they say, well, you know, we were doing a lot of streaming, but now we're just going to hold on to what we bought till theaters are fully open. I mean, I've heard that about four or five movies that I wanted to write about and I call up and say, well, when are you opening this? Um, That was after Sundance. And it is, well, we really love this movie and we're going to wait till theaters are fully open. We're not going to play around with it online. And basically the only distributor who's done that really well, I think is Kino Lorber. I mean, they really have some great movies and, you know, you trust going to that space. And, but even that, you know, it's not the right way to look at movies. That's it. All. That's all. <laughs> and so you have to start thinking, is that generational? Because I started watching movies before there was TV, you know? So my earliest formative experiences were in movie theaters. I think an awful lot of critics now, their formative experience was... I mean, watching movies on TV and now watching everything online. I'm not sure that 
not having that theatrical experience matters in the kind of deep in my psyche way remembering being in a theater when I was two years old matters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there is a question of how you even, how do you situate these different experiences when you don't have the different, I mean, one thing that having these different media forms do for us if we have, you know, TV, big screen, computer, I don't know, iPad or something small, even smaller, I think each of those comes with its own kind of imprint and, and signature. And it's almost that varying between them helps give them a distinctive identity. But when it, it's all to the same medium, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's why sometimes the different waves of enthusiasm that I read about or, or you know, and, and see and track just like everyone, those also start to feel the same, you know, just they sort of ebb and flow, come and go and are very much attached to whatever successful marketing has managed to break through the noise to kind of occupy the center spotlight. And then consequently, awards then, you know, continue to have outsized impact just because it's, I mean, it's the old conversational conundrum. Like people even just want to have the same thing to talk about. And then that's one way that that just happens. Although I have to say, that movies, one-off movies that are like two hours or around that, they just can't compete on the small screen with really great series television. And I've just been thinking about that a lot because, you know, one of the great, two of the great cinematic experiences of my life weren't movies this year. They were two series. They were I May Destroy You and... I did this insane thing and watched 50 hours of the Bureau in one week. And I just think it is extraordinary. And I feel about it. And it made me feel the way that no film could possibly make me feel right now. And I think about it obsessively. And the reason I didn't watch it when I could have since... 2017, season by season, was I was really afraid I would get addicted to it. And now I am, so I'm watching it all over again. I want to write a book about it, about series TV. About I don't want to preempt the book, but what, I mean, what do you think is the chief reason that it grips you in a way that movies aren't? I mean, is it just the, the kind of um, reliable, like, payload that each one kind of achieves I don't know, cliffhanger effect or other things like that? or No, not cliffhanger effect. I think that really great series TV are novelistic in a way that movies can't be. Novelistic in the way, you know, that a 400-page novel can't be. And the ones that matter to me, I mean, there are a lot of series TV that matter to a lot of other people, but the ones that matter to me all have the same two elements. One is that they really take you inside. They're procedural within an institution that affects us in a profound way. And they have a protagonist who's an insider at the institution and yet breaks ranks, can't go along with the program. And all three of the ones that I really care about, that's what they are. 
and you find that form in a lot of films but you know i mean all you have to look at and and they're intensely romantic i mean their protagonists aren't intensely romantic characters in that way you know they can't go along with the show so that's all i want to say because i'm thinking about it a lot but you can do that in a film you just can't do the deep dive into the institution the procedure of an institution the way you can in a 50-hour series right and also i guess in a movie if someone is a is a kind of insider slash outlier that becomes the kind of story of of the movie as opposed to just being this kind of character quality that you can you can track and and see how it affects their lives over a long course of time but if it's just single dramatic plot of, of a film it that becomes the kind of exceptional thing and then isn't developed in the same way i don't know that's my kind of structural hypothesis exactly i mean of course i think maybe we can when we can all um you know walk outside and <laughs> inside stores and bookstores <laughs> maybe we'll all feel a bit better about all of this <laughs> okay. it, it does strike me that at this edition of berlin there are ambitious movies that trying to keep a lot of balls in the air and i don't know if they're all equally successful but there is a iranian film that uh, you're a fan of ballad of a white cow yes my apologies for mispronouncing the filmmakers names there are two of them and it's betash sanneha and maryam mohadam and i don't know any of their other work although her name is familiar and it isn't a big film it's just a very good film in part because it has just an amazing performer the central character she is just so strong basically the plot is she is uh, a woman who has a deaf child a daughter who's around 9 i would say and her husband has been executed the movie begins with her visiting him in prison for the last time and we don't know what he was executed for and then she's told that a mistake was made and that someone else confessed to the crime afterwards they actually were involved in something darkly like a robbery together and the husband actually pushed the guy to the ground and then got scared and run, ran away and so when they were all arrested he took responsibility because he was the first person who struck a blow and he presumed he killed this guy but he didn't because the other guy after he was executed confessed that when the husband ran away the victim was still alive he was executed wrongly and so the the state decides to give her the price of an adult male we never told what that is to pay her the price the blood money for an adult male for her loss and then terrible things begin to happen to her one after another that you know she's thrown out of her apartment she has a terrible job to begin with they go on strike 
Uh, so everyone who didn't go on strike was fired because the plant closed. But this Good Samaritan shows up and says that he wants to pay back the money he borrowed from her husband. And he's extremely kind and good to her. So we begin to suspect that there are ulterior motives for this. So I won't say anything else. In an odd way, this film reminded me of John Dielman. Hmm. It is slow. And the central character, by the end, has to do something to stop things from happening to her. And she has to make a decision to do something, even if that is a terrible thing, which is what I've always thought about the ending of John Dillman. She has to make something change. But I'm not sure if it's a cop-out or not. The film doesn't quite do that. It gives you a double ending. And I've probably said too much. It has a great sense of time, the way it takes time. And sometimes I thought that the child, who in herself and in her relationship to her mother, is very moving. I kind of thought after a while, the fact that she couldn't hear what the adults were saying was a kind of way of allowing the plot to go forward in a kind of way. Because if she were a hearing child, she would have had to be coped with. In other words, she would have had to be kept ignorant of what was happening in a more complicated way. So I kind of saw the wheels turning a bit around that. It's a movie that is totally defined by the actors. And the man who says he has to pay back the money that he borrowed from the husband is really fine too. But she is mesmerizing. And you can just watch her sit at a table and do nothing, you know, for 50 seconds and it's enough, uh, or for two minutes and it's enough. It's interesting that having her play the role and, and be the director and possibly co-wrote the script. I think they co-wrote the script. And I guess she was in Closed Curtain, a Panahi movie. Oh, yeah. She is great. The kind of aftermath aspect of the story that she's, what happened to her, to her husband, I think that's often an interesting jumping off point in an Iranian dramas. Oh, yeah. And that every question that she brings up, what she's told is, well, it was God's will, you know, that he died. It was God's will. But we'll pay you the adult male compensation. But it was God's will. That's definitely one to look out for, Ballad of a White Cow. And then there was one other movie that you have seen that's actually in Critics Week, um, which I think is good to to mention. Um, I guess, full disclosure, um, I, I did a bit of work uh, on, on Critics Week this year. They have a magazine that they do online, and they asked me to put together some editorial for it, so I happily did. And one of those movies that's in Critics Week this year is An Unusual Summer, uh, directed by Kamal Alfari. This was also something that, Amy, that you liked, right? Yeah, I liked it a lot. And I have to do this Zoom conversation about it. Fortunately, I like it 
tremendously. I haven't seen his other films. I mean, I'm told that he is a very well-known Palestinian filmmaker. But there was an interesting note that he provided with An Unusual Summer, in which he said that maybe it's an experimental film, or it borders on being an experimental film. Well, yes, I don't know how you could think of it as anything other than an experimental film, and very much in a genre that is fairly well trafficked, although this is trafficked in a, in a quite radical way. Basically, it's about loss. I saw other films like this in Berlin. I've been seeing them all over. It's about a person who's now adult who lost their parent years ago, maybe when they were a child, but probably when they were grown up, and realizes that although there was the possibility of making images of their parents, they just didn't get around to it, or the equipment wasn't very good, or, you know, it was early video and it's all faded. So in this particular one, he wants to recover images of his father. And his father installed a surveillance camera outside the house where they lived because he thought he wanted to catch the person who was damaging his car, you know, like breaking windows on his car. And so he installed a surveillance camera to find out about this. And the filmmaker goes through the surveillance footage because they would be the only moving images of his father that he had. And so what most of this film is, is we see very bad surveillance footage, just barely at the level of being legible. I mean, you could see there are people and then there are voiceovers. One, I presume, is the filmmaker. One, I presume, is maybe his niece, because in the credits she has a different last name and he does have a sister. So a young girl who talks about, is that grandpa? Huh? And Kamal gives a running commentary on the people that we see, their neighbors or their people he knew in his childhood, or there's his mother and she goes to the bakery. And we can barely see this stuff. I mean, they're, you know, kind of bodies in motion in long shot. And it's clear that he also did things in post-production, particularly to move. I think it was a motion sensitive camera but I'm sure it could not move into close-up the way it does here. So I think that was done in post-production. The close-ups don't make the images any more coherent. And then you begin to realize that what he's showing us is not only the people, but the place, the place of his childhood that would have been of his own coming and going. And... You know, you have to be patient and you have to understand how much this footage means to him, which you can tell from the voiceover. But after the footage ends, he has 
a fairly long prose poem about how nothing of this place exists anymore. He, and I'm presuming nothing of this place exists because of the Palestinian displacement by the Israelis, but his family doesn't own this place. They don't own the tree that grew in the front. It's gone. And there is nothing left of it except this surveillance footage that we had seen. And when he talks about it in, or writes about it in the prose poem, even in translation, the words are expressive in the way that the footage is not, you know? I mean, it, it, and, and that makes the sense of loss even more intense. It's an incredibly moving film. I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of traces that are that are left behind, these unintentional traces. It's as if it's like the technological equivalent of if all you had left of a person's memory was they, they happened to run through some wet concrete or something, and you're sort of pouring over this muzzy expanse to try to get something, extract something out of it. Right. And I think the reason that he calls it an experimental film is that he and I can't imagine how an audience, an art film audience, or even the audience that would come to the forum in Berlin would sit through this because there's almost nothing expressive on the screen. You know, it's a film about what's not there on the screen, uh, which is an idea that a lot of filmmakers have, experimental filmmakers, you know, and run with but he runs with it in a particularly moving way, in part because by the end you are aware of not only the displacement of his own family, I mean, the generation of his father died, but the displacement of the Palestinians from their home. Yeah, and for the the editorial work I, I mentioned what I did for this particular film, because each of these Critics Week films has a little film text uh, that goes with it. In this case, I paired Kamal Alfari with another director, Ranan Alexandrovich, who directed The Viewing Booth, the one where uh, the director sets up shop. You know, it's almost like a, one of those college behavioral experiments that you could make, you know, $10 an hour doing. He invited students in to watch basically viral clips uh, that are kind of provocative in some way uh, related to Israeli-Palestinian conflict and relations. And eventually he settles on one student who's the bulk of the movie and basically talks with her and watches her as she watches. I mean, the camera shows her facial expressions and reactions and commentary as she watches various clips. Um, And she actually comes in for two visits. So it's and she's very open about what she thinks and what she feels biased about, which is, you know, doesn't know if she's biased about. And so they had a kind of interesting, um, Alexander Rich wrote kind of letter of questions to Kamal Afari. And then he wrote back with actually something that uh, a response that actually had had a sense of prose poetry a little at times. So he's a very good writer. Yeah, definitely. So that's an unusual summer. Oh, the other thing is that his letter is datelined Palermo. So I guess he now lives in Sicily. 
Well, he says at the end of the film, I don't live anywhere near there anymore. Yeah. I think it's a movie that's just been in a couple of festivals. So it's good that it's it's out there in another way. I mean, I don't know, just thinking about it, just made me think of what video record I have of relatives who are no longer here. And I, I, I mean, I have very little. I, I don't I don't think there's any surveillance <laughs> footage I have to comb. Um, but what little I have, I feel like I don't even want to look at much ever because it just sort of reminds me that there's nothing else. I don't know. That there's something about the video that just right. makes me think about the abs- absence of it. So uh, yeah, definitely makes sense to write out and write around it um, in, in that way. Well, someone actually says that in another film we were going to talk about, which is Alice Diop's new We. Oh, yeah. And one of her characters actually says that, that she only had this very small amount of video of her mother, and she couldn't bring herself to look at it because she knew that it was going to be so little. And then in the film, she actually does look at it and say that her mother didn't know that she was at all sick, and it was the last dinner that they had together, and then she died. And she couldn't bring herself to watch it, but then she does because it's in the film. And it's very fragmented. I mean, the basis is it's a trip. And I thought reading the summary, it would all take place on a train, but it doesn't, although... I guess if you know Paris and the outskirts, it does take place along a train line. There is a train that runs north-south in Paris, you know, a high-speed rail, and runs its route from the outskirts where there are a lot of African immigrants. So the beginning of the film, well, no, the very beginning of the film is three... French people, very enigmatic. But then we stay on the outskirts and there are a couple of segments about French Africans or African immigrants who are undocumented, unclear, but have been there a long time. And I mean, for me, while there were wonderful vignettes, it never really came together And then toward the end of the film, the filmmakers actually comes in to it, and she is interviewing an elderly professor. But, you know, the theme about young people losing their parents and then looking for traces, as you said, and elderly people, because there are a lot of elderly people in the film, who've lost their own history, you know, or nothing exists of it except what's still in their head. The people are gone, dead. They don't have images to show, so they can recount stories, but it is very much a film about disconnection. And so I guess I shouldn't object that it never quite seems to come together since What the film is talking about is disconnection. It is acted, I think, but I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how much is part characters who who are, have actors playing them uh, with actual people. 
that was really unclear. It was clear that the filmmaker had given people rules because at one point a guy looks into the camera and realizes that he's done something wrong. Mm. So that's interesting. But some of the sequences could not possibly be, it's not just a documentary. Some of the sequences, even if these are real people, they are clearly staged. They have it listed as a documentary form, but it, since it's in the encounters section, I, I guess it's it's maybe a, a given that anything documentary there is going to have some hybrid elements t- to it as well. Right. Anyway, at, well, at a certain point, one of these people, I keep calling them characters, talks about how her father and mother, all the time they had been in France, which was many decades, had been paying for their graves in Senegal. And when she became an adult, she refused to do that for herself because she said that she wanted to be buried where her children would live. And so she was declaring herself French in separating herself from her parents. I mean, that was a point of separation and loss. They would go back to Senegal and sleep with their parents, and she would be buried in France, hopefully so that her children could come and visit their mother's grave if she had children. For some reason, that was the most interesting moment in the film, that sense of fragmented lives. Yeah, that's something that's hard to, can be hard to represent. Um, Well, actually, this ends up being a really good film to connect with the one film I wanted to talk about quickly, because it's also about uh, loss. Well, I'm talking about the new Céline Sciamma movie, which is called Petite Maman. It centers on a mother and her child. But what's happened in the very beginning of the movie is that the mother's mother, so the child's grandmother, has just passed away. And really, very beginning, they're moving her belongings out of the kind of rest home where she had been. And we're close to the perspective of of the child. The mother's name is Marion, and the daughter's name is Nellie. So Nellie is kind of our point of view. I mean, I don't want to talk too much at length about about the movie because I think in some ways, you know, it's it has a kind of fable-like quality in that there's it sort of has this mechanism to it that's sort of simple and, and nice to just feel unfold when you watch it. A movie is only around 70 minutes long. And basically what happens is they're moving kind of shutting up shop in the grandmother's former house in the country. And Nellie and her father are in the house. And Nellie is, you know, going through old school books of of her mother's. And, you know, for about 20, 30 minutes, the movie has such a calm, serene pace to it that you kind of wonder what on earth is going to happen. (laughs) Because it's just it's just her. It's just Nellie kind of playing in the house, playing in the woods around the house. But what happens is she goes into the woods one day and she sees another child in the woods. And it's strange because the house is kind of seems to be in the middle of nowhere. And immediately, I guess as kids do, the other kid asks for help with carrying this enormous branch. So Nellie just pitches <laughs> in. And and then what happens is this other kid looks exactly like her. And, and they, are, they are actually uh-huh. played by twins. 
And so they're dragging the stick and to a little fort in the woods that, that the other child has made, whose name it turns out is Marion. And, you know, Nellie is, is very quick and doesn't let on, but immediately realizes this is a little strange because the fort is also <laughs> something that her mother had described to her. You know, her mother said, oh, you know, I may, used to make a fort in the woods. And Nellie was like, oh, whatever happened to that fort? Is it, you know, is it three trees or four trees? It's like this little thing. And basically, Nellie figures out that this is her, her mother. This is her mother as a uh -huh. child. That's who she's playing with. So just like this very basic, simple, it's just one of those ideas in a movie that, yeah, I'm sure it's it's happened in some other movie, but it's just such an elegant little thing, this sort of immediate portal to, well, I wonder what my mother was like. Um, and what the movie does is basically put Nellie in that situation. And through that simple little magical perspective she's able to you know work out her kind of feelings about her mother and about her grandmother <laughs> who of course is also alive in this scenario which is is real life like there is a physical connection between she walks through the same forest to get to her mother who is this child mm -hmm. uh so it's yeah. It's it's almost it's almost like a really good joke in the sense that if I start explaining it, it, it gets it seems more mundane. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a wonderful wonderful premise. So I, yeah, and that's that's where it goes from there. Is and I think what it is is it's a, 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 an idea like that taps into the most primal feelings you would have of just I wish you know, um, you know I like I wish I wish I knew what. You know, I wish I knew what my parent was like as a child. I wish I could have related to her in that way or, and see what that would have been like, that kind of bond. And then, I mean, ultimately, you know, Nellie comes away with this knowledge, which affects how she goes back to her parents as well. Um, so I think it's after Portrait of a Lady on Fire, there must have been all sorts of huge expectations. And I think this is the the best kind of subsequent film to do, which just completely um i mean on the one hand goes back to something that i think she's siyama is really good at which is writing children or write and writing young people and mm -hmm. and their kind of thoughts and the way they relate and and on yeah on the other hand is in another mode just because it has this magical aspect there i mean there's no hint of any whatever enchanted forest or anything this is just something that just happens and it's kind of mm -hmm. matter of factly happens I mean, now that I think about it, it's, there are any number of like children's fantasy movies that, you know, they mount these elaborate sets and productions and creatures and everything to essentially kind of do the same thing. Right. <laughs> Whereas this movie just kind of boils it down to to the very uh, what if and just carries it out. I don't know. There's just one scene where they're making crepes together and I, <laughs> it's very sweet. And it's all about perspective. Like so many of the, like the best most efficient like film ideas it's just like what if you had this perspective and then follow that through and what do you do with what you learn from that experience or have from that experience and she shot it during the lockdown i think i read that i could believe that i mean it's definitely a quarantined set in a way because there are two adult actors they're the twins and then there's her mother's mother and so it's it's all very kind of stripped down 
um, and and in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> uh, just this kind of French countryside. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there's maybe an echo with Portrait in the sense that another story where uh, you know a couple of people are kind of building their own world and uh-huh. that has its own has its own rules that allow them you know a certain freedom and a certain understanding and a certain self-realization they didn't have before or couldn't have before i hadn't read anything about it i think i just had the title to go on which you know makes it is is exactly correct <laughs> i mean she is her playmate <laughs> is her little mother you know her mother is a little girl right <laughs> But yeah, well, I mean, I can't wait for, for to, to hear what you, what you think of it when when you do see it. I guess now we'll see it. Uh, Neon bought it. Yeah, I'm sure that they will wait for New York Film Festival, whatever form the New York Film Festival takes. But this seems to me like a film that they're going to hold on to till theaters fully open. No, there was definitely a couple of things in the movie where, yeah. I wanted people. <laughs> I wanted people around me to kind of have that little aha moment because it's yeah, it's a movie that kind of plants a humble seed, and and then you kind of rush in to fill it a little. I think with your experience, one's experiences as well. That's what I that's what I have to to contribute to the stories of bridging across time and generations, which this movie does with a twist. That probably brings us to the end of uh, this dispatch about. Berlin. I dispatch. I don't even know if that's the right word anymore. I mean, we're all just at home. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't even apply to Berlin. So I just counted on the goodwill of some uh, sales agents and publicists to supply me with something that I could talk about. <laughs> well, I'm glad we did get to talk about these movies. And uh, we'll talk again soon about what we've been recently watching because I, I would love to hear more about the Bureau, but I think I need to watch a bunch of it too. And then we can hash it hash it out, this addiction. Yeah, well, don't do what I did because it really was like crack. I mean, I finally understood <laughs> what people would feel like when they did crack. I could not, and I didn't sleep. I mean, I would just keep watching all night. And after it was over, I would keep approaching the TV set after I got into the 50th, end of the 50th episode. And for three days, I kept going over there and picking up the remote and thinking there was more. So be careful. Be careful. I'll proceed with with caution. Measured doses. Thanks for for talking as always. And we'll sure we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for inviting me. And I look forward to talking again soon. Okay. Bye. Have a good night. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.